Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash milkstreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash milkstreet. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. The mechanical apple peeler looks like something invented by Rube Goldberg. It was a sort of crazy elaborate object with all of these cogs and wheels that you put the apple in and you can peel it. And you can still buy that today, by the way. 
Yes, I've seen some vintage ones online. Have you seen some brand new ones? I mean, this is showing my age, but I've, I've used them and you can actually buy them new. Yeah. I've always wondered of these people having this need to peel so many, so many, so many apples. <laughs> That's Corinne Minot, and today she'll tell us about history's favorite and most fascinating tools for making food. But first, I'm joined by barbecue expert Meathead to learn the secrets to the juiciest and, by the way, the safest burger. Meathead, uh, welcome back to Milk Street. Oh, I love talking to Milk Street. So, you know, I refuse to eat a well-cooked burger. I I just don't want to eat it unless it's medium rare. (laughs) So what is the risk here? Well, you've said the magic word, risk, and that's something that we're all measuring with these different techniques. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control says 173,000 Americans fell ill last year from the pathogenic strains of the bacteria E. coli. Now, that's all E. coli illnesses, many of which are burger-related, but we don't know that for sure. As as someone once told me, I said, you know, what's the big deal and they said there are two kinds of people in the world, people who've gotten foodborne illness and people who haven't. And if you've ever gotten sick mm-hmm. from food, you will never do it again. You don't want it. So before we get into your solutions here, if I go – I have two questions. If I go to a butcher shop, is that going to be safer? You know, a butcher shop where the butcher is conscientious and takes good care of the meats, the risk does lower. But – You know, the real problem can occur in the slaughterhouse. And then if they leave the box of meat sitting on the loading dock too long or the refrigerator in the truck doesn't work all that well, there's chances for bacteria to grow. But if I grind my own meat, then I get rid of some of that risk, right? Well, you can, but if there's bacteria on the surface of that steak... It's getting to the inside. Now, there is a solution if you're into grinding your own meat, and that is a technique that I call hot tub your steak. Take your steak and dunk it in boiling water for 10, 20 seconds and pull it out. (laughs) Now, that sounds... Absurd. It does. But I'll tell you what happens. It will turn the surface of the steak gray, but you've killed any bacteria that's on the surface. You've pasteurized it. You've made it perfectly safe. Now you can grind it, and that little bit of gray on the surface is just not going to affect the quality of the burger. Heck, you can eat it raw. I'll never get into a hot tub again. Thank you for that. (laughs) Uh, Really appreciate it. Um, Okay, uh, what's next? Well, um, sous vide is a really good solution. You can take any kind of meat, like a burger, and put it in the sous vide machine at 131 or higher and leave it there for three or four hours, and it will slowly kill all the bacteria. And now you can have a uh, 130 is medium rare. You can have a perfect medium rare burger that is just absolutely safe as can be. Well, when I want a burger, I don't have a four-hour waiting window. <laughs> like, I, I, it might's about 10 minutes. Okay, so if I don't want to wait three or four hours <laughs> to slowly sous vide my burger, what do I do? Well, you know, you said you'll be darned if you're going to eat a well-done burger. But a lot of what we consider moisture is not just water. A lot of it is fat. 
a lot of it is saliva. I mean, nothing like a sizzling burger to get the saliva going in your mouth. That makes a burger juicy. But fat is what much of the flavor and much of the juiciness in a burger comes from. So don't get lean burger meat. Right. A lot of people go down and they'll get a lean burger because they're worried about the calories. Well, how many burgers are you going to eat a week? Do yourself a favor and get one that's at least 20 to 30% fat. The higher the fat, the more juice. And, and if you cook a burger well done, that's 70-30, 70% lean, 30% fat, you're not going to notice that it's well done. Years ago, I remember going to a, a food conference and there was some guy there about irradiation and it was the way of the future and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And we all kind of you know rolled our eyes. Uh, but doesn't irradiation, forgetting about any other possible downside, doesn't it solve this problem? Yeah, absolutely. Except most of us don't have gamma ray machines in our house. Um, That's coming probably. Who knows? You know, I mean, my goodness gracious, all these gizmos in our kitchens nowadays. But there are irradiated burger meats out there. It's not the same radiation that will make the meat glow in the dark. This stuff just goes right through the meat, kills all bacteria, and comes right out and doesn't do any harm to it. Hmm. Uh, any other ideas? Well, uh, one of the things I like to do is I like to chop up some bacon and put it in with the blend when I grind my own. Hmm. Or even butter. You can take a little bit of butter and grind it in there with the meat. Uh, the, the idea here is, is you want to boost the fat content. There's no way around it. Look at folks. You're going to eat 80,000 meals in your life if you live to be 80. You can have a really fatty burger every now and then. Okay, what about the one you didn't mention, which is my always go-to method, which is the panade? I mean, the old Italian method of taking white bread and milk and making a a paste and, and putting that in. I just made some... Neapolitan meatballs this weekend, which use that technique. Mm-hmm. You're, you're making weird noises. No, like I'm, I'm nodding because I learned about panade from you. Oh, um, okay. I think it's marvelous. Uh, a little white bread, uh, a little milk. Now right. you're adding water moisture, milk being water moisture, but the the white bread binds it, and right. you, you actually get a gelatinous right. character. And I'm sorry, I forgot that on my list, but it's a good answer. And oh, and one other thing we missed here is don't put salt in your blend when what? you're mixing it up. Not in the blend, on the burger. Why? When you mix it in with the ground meat, yeah. it compacts the meat, makes it tougher. So you're saying that compact meat gives you the feeling of drier meat? Yes. And it also squeezes out juices. When muscle fibers oh, compress, right. Right. they squeeze right. out juices. Now, that's different than with a steak. You want to get the salt on a steak early so that it can penetrate. But with ground meat, put the salt on the surface just before you cook. Hmm. That'll amp up the flavor, and it's going to be good and juicy. Meathead, it's always a pleasure. From the hot tub to the hot grill. Thank you. (laughs) Always good talking to you guys. That was Meathead, founder of AmazingRibs.com also author of The Science of Great Barbecue and Grilling. Now, my co-hosts, Sarah Molt and I, are ready to solve your culinary mysteries. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, and she stars in Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. 
Sarah, let's talk about food movies. Babette's Feast obviously would be one of our favorites. But is there a, a movie that is sort of under the radar that you really love as a food movie? Oh, I'd like to say under the radar, but no, I watched all the same ones that everybody else did. And, you know, Big Night was one of them that I loved, along with Babette's Feast. Babette's Feast, of course, because it was French. But the trouble with Big Night is it it's one of those things that always makes me sad when you don't know if a restaurant's going to make it. You walk past a restaurant that's newly opened and nobody's in there. So I just felt such agita watching that. But I have to say, a movie that did make me happy, and this will give you no surprise, was Julie and Julia. I never saw it. What? No, I'll tell you why. Julia told me many years ago that she never read the book and she was not a fan. Okay, well, let me tell and you. As a result, you, I, I boycotted You the are movie. a very loyal boy, and I <laughs> applaud you for that. But let me just tell you something interesting that you'll agree with, I think. You're right. Julia was mad that Julie Powell wrote a blog because she felt like Julie Powell was capitalizing on Julia's right. name and maybe going to make money. And Julia never endorsed any product because right. she thought that was too commercial. So right. she didn't want anybody using her name to right. do the same. Right. And she was very against it becoming a blog. And then, of course, it became a book. And then, of course, the book was made into a movie. But what I will say to you about that loyalty, and I appreciated it, is if that blog hadn't turned into that book, hadn't turned into that movie, Julia wouldn't be as famous as she is today. The Julia half of that movie was based on Julia's book, My Time in France, which was a phenomenal book written by her and Alex Prudham. I know you have. I do believe that Meryl Streep did a fantastic job and that Stanley Tucci was great as, As as Paul. You know, her passion, like the first time she had the fish... At La Caronne, the Sol Meunier, mm-hmm. and it just, she just fell in love. And also all the nervousness on Julie Powell's part, you know, the actress, you could just feel how that felt not being able to do what she That's was doing. Fair. So I love that movie, mainly for the Julia part. There's a story, by the way, Julia, it was in one of her books, but she also told me, they used to go every summer to the place she had in, I guess, Simone Beck's area. La Pichon. La Pichon. They used to have lunch at the airport in Nice, and they'd have Sol Meunier and a glass of wine. She always looked forward to that, which I thought was so charming. Was it not some famous restaurant? I wonder if it also reminded her of that very first experience, which she said in her book was indeed the epiphany. Yeah, the only thing I'll end with is I'm not sure Julia ever wanted to be famous, per se, I think she always wanted to teach people, but she never seemed to be somebody who was interested in personal fame. No, she wasn't, but boy, did she enjoy it. Yeah, she enjoyed it. Not that she ever flaunted it. She was the nicest person on the planet, as we both know. A stranger come up to her and say, I love your book. She'd ask them all about them and have a long conversation. did did they train in France? (laughs) Not necessarily. Did she train in France? She was very sweet with a home cook, you know. We'll never see the likes of her again, I suspect. No. So anyway, God bless her. Unique. Okay, time to take some calls. Yes. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Katie Plotkin. How can we help you? Okay, well, my husband's newly diabetic, and I've been trying to take the sugar out of the cooking. And I've been trying to make a tomato sauce, and whenever I don't put the sugar in, it is incredibly acidic. Right. Not tangy, acidic. And I was looking for alternative ways to tone down the acid. I'm not a doctor, but I do put sometimes a little sugar in because I notice that a lot of canned tomatoes are very acidic. 
like a teaspoon. I don't know if that amount of sugar is problematic, but you can add very little to balance acidity. Okay. Grated onions, another trick. I often make a marinara with that. And use yellow onions. Yellow onions, although they're strong raw, they end up being much sweeter when they're cooked. A quarter cup or half a cup is great. The last trick is try a quarter teaspoon of baking soda. It's alkaline. It balances acidity just like it would, you know, in making uh, buttermilk biscuits. So a quarter teaspoon of baking soda. You can add more if you need it, but that'll probably balance off the acidity. And fourth, you know, there are such things as canned cherry tomatoes, which are phenomenal. I think they're much better than the large tomatoes. If you can find those, those are sweeter to start with. That sounds like a wonderful idea. I'll have yeah. to see if I can find them. They're but I so live in good. a mountain town in Colorado. Well, you may have to uh, have them shipped in, <laughs> get a case yeah. of them. But I, I found them to be so much better. Anyway, Sarah? Yeah, no, I agree with everything Chris said. But another thing is carrots because they're naturally sweet. But I don't know if that's still an issue for your husband. Oh, carrots are not an issue. Okay, well, then I would add some carrots. And here's another idea. Yeah, and I would grate those too. Yeah, but I would also saute them first. Sure. But another thing that's, again, I don't know if this is an issue, is to finish it after you've cooked it for quite a while, is to add some cream. Cream's not a problem. That's just something completely new I'd never heard of. Adding the cream in the end, cream tamps down acid. So does butter. You know, you could throw in some well, butter at the end. Butter and tomato sauce actually works. But the other thing is when I finish a tomato sauce, marinara, I add a generous helping of olive oil at the end. I use sort of a sweet olive oil, yeah. like a yellow unfiltered one, and add a few tablespoons of that in the end. And I find that also gives you a much less acidic flavor. Right. The fat will tamp it The fat down. will tamp it down. And that's maybe my best answer. Yeah. yeah. And also it's so yummy. Olive oil is so yummy. And even if it doesn't, it tastes better. Yeah. <laughs> so. Okay. Well, Katie, that's, I hope that... All we know about yeah. that. Yeah. Thank you yeah. so much. Thanks for calling. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, just give us a ring anytime, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Melissa from White Springs, Florida. Hi, Melissa. How can we help you today? I'm drowning in lemons. Oh, jeez. That would make me happy. You have lemon trees? Yes, we do. And, you know, you don't get one. You get bushels. And we like lemonade to a point. But I tell you, the one thing I really love is the lemon zest, which I learned from watching your show once. I'd like to know how to freeze lemon zest and still have some taste. Well, have you tried that already and it hasn't worked? Well, I froze it in a little water which took all the life right out of it. Right. I tried freezing it in some olive oil, and it was greasy. And it just, it, the pal's gone. Right. Freeze it naked. If you're a big fan of lemon zest, and it's hands down one of my favorite ingredients, you should get something that's called a citrus zester. I can't remember the brand that I like, but there's quite a few that are really perfect because they don't grab the white pith underneath. Right. Now, to be stripped or is it going to look like wet sawdust when I'm done? You know, it's a little wet naturally, but then you spread it out on a sheet pan and freeze it. You're talking about strips? Oh, no, I'm talking talking about grated. Grated. I'm sorry. Thank you, Chris. Grated. Um, Okay. Grated. 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 That's what I would do. You can do both, actually. 
and then, you know, pack it however you want in a container that, you know, to try to get the air out. And then understand there will be some ice crystals, so use perhaps a tiny bit more, but I think you'll get much more flavor out of that in recipes than you would if you'd put it in oil or water. The other thing is you can grate it, spread it on a sheet pan, and dry it for a couple of days and then Mm -hmm. store it dried, and that will have some nice flavor too. I would tend to go with the fresh frozen and then package it. Okay. So that's what I would do if you want to just use the zest straight up. Of course, there's other things that you can do with lemon rind. You could make candied lemon peel. You could make preserved lemons. That would be the whole lemon. But isn't that salty? Because I read the recipe. It was so much salt in there. Well, that is true. It just didn't sound appealing. Well, it's actually really yummy. It's like a pickle. It's like any other pickle. It's salty and acidic and wonderful. But I should hand the mic over here to Chris to see what he has to say. Yeah, the only trick with preserved lemons is use a small piece of lemon when you're cooking. Don't use Mm -hmm. like half a lemon because it's really overpowering. So you might use little slices of it like an eighth of a lemon in a dish or something this like that. This is after you preserve yes. it. Yes, yeah. yeah, after you preserve right. it. So, right. yeah, they are powerful and can be salty, but use them in, as Julia said, in moderation. Yeah, and then they'll add both acid and salt to your recipe yeah. as well as the yummy lemon flavor. By the way, you can't do preserved lemons if they've been sprayed or other stuff on the outside, so you make sure they're well washed. They're all organic. We just let the deer eat them, The everything oh. eats them, squirrels, us. There's enough for everybody. <laughs> wait, wait, do, do you have a video of a squirrel eating a lemon? Because that could go viral. Yeah. Yeah. I have lots of things. I'd, like I'd like to see his little face. Pucker up. Yeah, pucker <laughs> up. Right. Okay. <laughs> I'll give that a try. Thanks. All right. Take okay. care. Okay. okay. Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we'll hear about the best and craziest kitchen tools of all time. That's right up after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, Crusty bread, it's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, 
which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just wanted to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Great Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Corinne Minot, author of Tools for Food. Corinne, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, tools for food. Some of these things are really extraordinary. But the one thing that really struck me, uh, I'd like to talk about first, is the dog spit. (laughs) So, it comes from a long history of tools for spinning a rotisserie in the hearth. So, First, it was done manually, and then from the 15th to 18th centuries, someone discovered that actually having a dog do the work was a kind of, well, they thought it was a good idea, and the dogs needed walking, and so they might as well be put to use to do that. So it was a kind of step up and taking away the the human labor, and it was a sort of wheel, like any hamster wheel, inset into the wall usually, where a short-legged, long-bodied dog would do the work of spinning the spit for a few hours by walking round and round. Now, it's said that 
as it fell out of favor after the 18th century, after it had been exported to America, actually, and the technique was used in some American hotel kitchens, that it eventually helped start the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Um, And of course, now we have elaborate machines for rotisserie chickens. So we, yes, no longer use the dog spit, thankfully. Here's a tool I really didn't know about, the dough trough. It's for kneading dough. Mm -hmm. Could you describe what it looks like? Yeah, so the one in this book is a long, oblong wooden bowl and actually has some repairs on it with metal because back in the day, things were valued more and you wouldn't just throw something away, you would repair it within an inch of its life. And a dough trough is where you would put the dough for when it was rising. And yeah, I just love this one in the book because it has that repair on it. Uh, Knives, of course. Um a year ago, I was out in Los Angeles making soba, actually getting a lesson from Sunoko Sakai, and she pulled out her soba kiri knife, which which looks a little bit like a Chinese cleaver almost. Mm. Um, and the ice cream slicer, um, the Victorian ice cream slicer. Yes. I, I love the soba kiri, and when I borrowed this from a friend to shoot it for the book, I had a chance to use it, so I made some soba noodles and cut with it. And it is this extraordinary feeling you know, pushing down with this heavy blade with such a particular shape. And yes, the ice cream slicer, I mean, yeah, that just shows how things have changed. You know, we don't slice ice cream in that formal way anymore, but put it into nice, beautiful spheres instead. No, we just take the pint and get a spoon and sit by the TV and eat the whole thing. (laughs) Or that. Or that, right, which no one wants to talk about. (laughs) Um, A few of the items in your book are good examples of changing design over time. Let's start with the peeler. So how did they get started and what were some of the iterations along the way? So, yeah, I like to go to the Industrial Revolution and in particular the moment of 1851 in the Great Exhibition of London where there was a real burst of activity in terms of invention. And in the book we feature an apple peeler which is mechanical and it's this sort of crazy elaborate object with all of these cogs and wheels um, that you put the apple in and you can peel it. And you can still buy that today, by the way. Yes, I've seen some vintage ones online. Have you seen some brand new ones? I mean, this is showing my age, but I've I've used them, and you can actually buy them new. Yeah, they exist. And do they do they work well? Do you like they to actually? It? If you get the tension right between the arm that holds the blade, yeah, it does work. Yeah. I've always wondered of these people having this need to peel so many, so many, so many apples that they need this, or so many, so many potatoes. Maybe potatoes make sense. Well, if 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 you go back not too long ago, people came in and bought bushels of apples, right? Mm. And then they would make applesauce or pies or other thing. You buy produce at its peak and you process it and can it, right? Yeah. And today people go in and buy three apples. So that will lead me, I'm going to go in a little bit of a tangent to talk about labor because, you know, you have this industrial revolution. Well, at the same time, you're having a kind of shift of labor in the household. So people who might have had help in the household, that whole structure was changing. You know, it was kind of being shifted over to perhaps the woman of the household. And so there was a sort of shift in that happening at the same time to account for these inventions. So yeah, you have this mechanical peeler from 1851, which leads me to the well-known OXO good grips. You know, they basically put a bicycle handle with a swivel peeling blade on the end, and that was kind of how the design started and how it exists today. But designed very specifically 
to help people with arthritis or limited mobility to be able to use a kitchen tool effectively. So the peeler, yeah, it has a, a long history and has certainly evolved in many different ways. Well, OXO, I think OXO originally was designing medical tools, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's right. And they and they obviously wanted the handles were critical, and they moved into the kitchen. I mean, you make a very good point about the industrial revolution and domestic help. Uh, by the eighteen nineties, women who in sort of middle or upper middle class households were now having to go into the kitchen. That's right. So kitchens went from dark, dirty dungeons to all of a sudden <laughs> they whitewash the walls and they they have bigger windows and yeah they, and they had to create all these tools to help you cook. Exactly. So, okay, let, let's shift gears here. What items did you find that you think should still be in use or be updated? Well, I'm, I'm going to give a kind of funny example, only because it's one of the most beautiful objects in the book that I discovered. In the clean section of the book, there's this Victorian flycatcher, and it is a completely glass object that's extraordinarily beautiful. It's a sort of bulbous glass form, and it has three glass feet, and it has an opening in the bottom for flies to come in mm. that usually they would put a sort of colored sweet liquid in the flycatcher. And on the top, it's just like a bottle, but it has a glass stopper so that the flies can't get out. And now, you know, we have these blue light zappers or, mm. you know, other kind of ways of killing flies in the kitchen, you know, the tape that hangs from the ceiling. But this Victorian flycatcher is so beautiful, and I think it would make kitchens more beautiful. <laughs> well, I grew up sometimes in the summers with the, the long tapes that I still use. Yes. The problem is you're sitting there having noonday supper and there's this constant buzzing uh, mm. of flies glued to the strips from the ceiling. <laughs> so it really it loses some of its charm. Yeah. Are there other items that really talk about a culture and a time which say something about the people who designed it? Absolutely. And I would say that that is the molinillo from Mexico, which means little mill. And it's used for hot chocolate. And actually, when I was just in Mexico the other month, I went somewhere. And when I arrived, they offered us hot chocolate and they used the molinillo to froth the hot chocolate. And the object can be extraordinarily beautiful. You know, drinking hot chocolate goes back thousands of years in Mexico. It was always a really important sort of ritual. It was reserved for basically royalty. Women actually weren't allowed to drink it at first. They drank it out of gold cups. It was sometimes mixed with cinnamon and still is today, you know, with different sort of flavors. They made red versions that were colored with anato or achiote seed. And the object yeah, it's totally Mexican. It kind of speaks of that complexity of their culinary history, but also their cultural history. You said that the dough trough was something that had been repaired within an inch of its life. So do you think that people's relations to these quote-unquote tools was more intimate and long-lasting? Because as you said, they, they would have the same tool their entire life. Certainly, I do. But 
it's not to say that we don't necessarily have that now. I mean, I think, of course, we have way more disposable things in the kitchen, a lot of plastic and, and this sort of thing. But I think actually for many people, there's some objects that they have an attachment to or some bit of nostalgia. You know, they bought it in some place that reminds them of going to France or, you know, their, their mother or father handed down to them a certain tool that they kind of use lovingly or allows them to make a certain recipe from their homeland for instance. I mean, I do think a lot of that has disappeared as the example of the dough trough, but I think that there's still a lot of importance that people attach these tools in the kitchen. Well, let me ask this question. You know, it seems to me that it's easy to fall into the trap of looking into the past with sort of this romantic reverence, right, for how people Mm. did things and the tools they used. And I remember years ago in college, many years ago, being in art history class and there was a wedding mask used in Malaysia somewhere, and they subsequently read that the masks were thrown out after the ceremony because they, mm. they were just used for the ceremony. They, they were not objects of art. They were functional to the culture at the time. So I, I wonder whether as you go and collect these items and look back, there's sort of a fine balancing act, right, between romanticizing these objects and then thinking, well, these were the tools they used to make and prepare food. For sure. And I mean, there's always going to be a degree of temporality to things also. And it it makes me think of uh, a couple of examples in the book of uh, objects that don't last forever, like the Shikizaru in Japan, which is a sort of very delicate basket um, used to steam delicate fishes and other items like that. And it only lasts for about 15 to 20 uses. Hmm. Or even a goose feather brush from Hungary, which is used to put just the very thinnest layer of egg wash on pastry. You know, that's probably not... in the 70s i had that i bought that goose feather brush amazing and i used it for years so that just shows how old i am amazing yeah Yeah. so yeah there will always be a degree of of temporality sometimes corinne it's been my pleasure uh i love talking about tools in the kitchen and uh, i love your book tools for food thank you thank you so much been a pleasure talking to you That was Corinne Minot, author of Tools for Food, The Objects That Influence How and What We Eat. In this digital age, we do pride ourselves on the pace of innovation. But we forget that innovation is mostly a function of the tools at our disposal. So making a colander out of a sheepskin or a mechanical clock jack that turns a spit in front of a coal fire are as innovative as Facebook or Google. You know, every age has its genius. Elon Musk figured out how to build a better spaceship, but Leonardo da Vinci invented the ornithopter, the clock, the air conditioner, and the hydraulic power saw. So let's try to be a bit more humble. Modern food scientists invented Pop-Tarts, Tang, and TV dinners, while Leonardo was enjoying an organic, locally grown vegetarian diet. Progress is always in the eye of the beholder. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, chicken soup with ricotta dumplings. Lynn, how are you? I'm doing well. So this week it's chicken soup, and uh, we've done chicken soup many times on this show. I love chicken soup because it tells a lot about the culture it comes from. This one has ricotta dumplings, which is, I think, a really interesting twist and says a lot about the culture. So where is it from? So it is from Calabria, the region in southern Italy. These are really light, delicate, 
dumplings, and we're calling them dumplings, although it's sometimes called polpetti di ricotta, which polpetti is usually meatball, right? But we're going to put that in quotes because there's no meat. It's just a mixture of white bread, pecorino romano cheese, which is a really salty, flavorful sheep's milk cheese, ricotta, egg yolks, nutmeg, and salt and pepper. That all gets mixed together in a food processor, and then it's put into the refrigerator for about an hour to firm up before we start building those little polpetti. So we can just dispense with the chicken and the rest of it, right? This is just about ricotta meatballs. <laughs> it is really the star of this, but there is a really nice broth. We kind of enhance a store-bought chicken broth with some bone-in chicken thighs. So those add a ton of flavor, obviously, but we also use that chicken in the soup itself. And then onion, carrot, celery, and parsley, all of that gets chopped quite large. And that's because we're just using that to flavor the broth itself. We're going to actually take it out before we cook the dumplings. So this is a clear, it looks almost like a consomme, right? That's right. It's just a clear broth with just some dumplings in it. And so when Mm. we take that dumpling mixture out of the refrigerator, we can form them into about tablespoon-sized balls and then toss them in a little bit of flour. That's going to help them kind of stick together. Put it on a sheet tray and then... Have I mentioned that they're delicate? They go back Hmm. in the fridge for another 30 minutes to an hour to really firm up before we add them into the broth. Otherwise, they might fall apart. Yeah, I have to say there are two surprising things about this. It's pecorino, which has that sort of crazy, wild, sheepy flavor. (laughs) It really does. Which I love. And two, they really are delicate. I mean, they really are melt in your mouth. They're not sinkers, let me put it like that. No, in fact, when you add them to this broth, you want the broth at a really low simmer. You don't want it bubbling away because that's just going to kind of tear them apart. So you just put them in the broth very gently, take them out very gently when they're finished. They'll float to the top when they're ready. And then put them in the individual bowls, add the chicken, the broth, a little bit more of that Pecorino Romano on the top. It's a really, really nice flavorful broth but with those dumplings they soak up some of that broth because there's that bread in there and they're just so Mm. tender and light really really beautiful you know it's a good example of calabrian cooking because most people don't know much about it you know it's not been that popular the sort of the southern part of italy deeply southern part but this is a great example of really wonderful food that you know maybe you didn't expect to get so chicken soup with ricotta dumplings from calabria in southern italy Very delicate dumplings, great flavor, and easy to make. Thank you. You're welcome. You can get this recipe and all of our recipes at 177milkstreet.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Adam Gopnik tells us about the most iconic kitchen appliances, from the mix master to the air fryer. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability they'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, 
available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Michelle. Hi, Michelle. Where are you calling from? Houston, Texas. Okay. How can we help you today? I've been looking at a lot of recipes that call for kosher salt. And I've just wondered, other than the rabbi blessing it, is there any other reason to use kosher salt rather than other salt? I wanted to know if I could substitute iodized salt or um, sea salt or table salt. Oh, boy, that is a big question that people ask and have been asking forever. The reason that chefs like kosher salt, let's start there, is because it's so coarse. Because chefs season as they go when they cook. So it's very easy to pick up and drop, you know, on top of a piece of meat or into a sauce, and then it's not on your fingers. And you just can measure it very easily. It's hard to measure iodized salt. So that's one reason people like kosher salt. Also, it's very affordable. You get a big box, as opposed to sea salt, which is the purest of all the salts and, you know, has different flavors depending on the minerals of the body of water it came from. Sea salt is wonderful, but it's expensive, and I use it mainly as a finishing salt. Iodized salt, as you probably know, years ago, had iodine added because of goiter, and it's not the big issue it used to be, and you can taste that iodine, which is another reason that chefs don't like it. The thing about salt for salt for salt is it's not the same. So a teaspoon of iodized salt equals a teaspoon and a half of Morton's and two teaspoons of diamond crystal. Also, the difference between Morton and Diamond, besides the size of the crystals, is that Morton has an additive to make it free-flowing. There are no additives in the Diamond crystal. Chris? You did a pretty good job with that. Yeah, oh, my, I, thank think, you. I think Morton's is 1.2, but we're niggling over details. I just wondered if there was a difference for baking. 
very good question, and we argue about it in Milk Street all the time. Yeah. Rose, in my kitchen, who does most of the baking, will say she always uses table salt in baking because it dissolves more quickly and evenly. And I say, in 40 years of baking, I've always used kosher salt and never noticed that it doesn't disperse evenly in a wet batter or dough over time and heat. So I don't think so, but some professional, and she's more of a professional baker than I am, she will use table salt. I would just want to add one other thing. This whole iodized salt thing, I think at one time, maybe lack of iodine in the diet. It was in the middle of the country, people who didn't have access to seafood. It just sounds like one of those things that maybe was really important at one point, but probably not now. Maybe that's what's wrong with me. I don't have enough iodine in my diet, but I haven't used table salt in 30 years. So I'm not really sure for health reasons it's really that critical. But you should get a really coarse sea salt, like a Malden salt. Yeah. In addition to everyday diamond crystal, for example, the crystals are bigger and they're not used for cooking. They're just used for finishing. finishing. It's a finishing salt. And you get this incredibly light burst crunch of salt on a salad, for example, or on vegetables or whatever. So I would definitely recommend a very coarse sea salt as part of your repertoire. I agree. All right. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. Yeah, pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you need help in the kitchen, give us a call anytime. Our number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Nancy Davis. How can we help you? I tried to redo one of my mother's cake recipes. It's a treasured recipe. And the cake has walnuts in it, and I can no longer eat walnuts. And I had read that pretzels could be substituted Mm. for walnuts. So I tried it. I bought really skinny stick pretzels and chopped them up. And what I didn't realize I was doing until I tasted a very dry cake was that I was adding more flour and a little bit of salt to the recipe, and I hadn't compensated for it. It's a wonderful cake. It has orange zest in it and lemon zest, and then you make a hot kind of a sugar sauce with the orange juice and lemon juice in it, and you pour it Mm. over that at the end, and then you let it sit for a couple of days, and so it gets nice and moist, but not if you add pretzels and salt. (laughs) How do you compensate? I think the big difference is walnuts have a lot of oil, and this is like half a cup or a cup. It would be a cup of walnut, chopped fine, yeah. Yeah, you probably have a fair amount of oil in there, right? And chopped fine would release that oil during baking. Mm -hmm. So I would say you should add a few tablespoons of vegetable oil, like you would in a chiffon cake, for example, three or four tablespoons of oil, and that should solve the problem. But I don't think it's about flour. You could try reducing the flour by a couple tablespoons maybe. Mm -hmm. But if the pretzels aren't dissolving into the batter, I don't think that's going to be the problem, Sarah. So the walnuts are like little crunchy bits in there, right? Yes. So what you're missing really is the texture of the walnuts and probably the oil, like Chris said. But let me ask you a question. How about something else crunchy? Like how about... Captain Crunch. I was going to say Rice Krispie. Rice <laughs> Wasn't Krispies. that far off. Cr- really? Cr- yeah. Cr- no, crisp rice cereal. Add a cup of that, and I would still add a little bit of oil. That's really yeah. weird. No, I don't think so. I would Google Rice Krispie cake. Okay. 
somebody's thought of this, right? So you want to take a look. I don't know. It sounds a little far-fetched to me, but... I want you to try it. Try it. Let yeah. me know how it goes. Chris, don't okay. tell Chris. Just tell me. Okay. Isn't there anything, right. But isn't there hey. something else that's crunchy, though? Oh, grape nuts. That would be interesting. Oh, boy. I think some kind of cereal that is in small pieces would be a nice crunch. But I would start with Rice Krispies. You know, this is one of those callback things. I would like you to try this, too. Yes, please. And I'd love to hear what what you think of Sarah Moulton after trying this. (laughs) Okay. All right. Thanks, Chris. Okay. All right. Take care. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay. Bye. 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 Next up, it's Adam Gopnik. Adam, how are you? I am very well, Christopher. I am spending the usual amount of time in my kitchen. And I have been thinking lately, uh, something that I think anyone who has millennial children will have noticed, which is that they have but one obsession in the gastronomic world, and that is the air fryer. (laughs) And I've lately been turned on to the whole world of TikTok videos of air frying. Have you gotten involved with the TikTok air frying? Uh, no, we, we did try one a year ago at Milk Street, right. and it does mm-hmm. do certain things well, but it doesn't actually fry. I mean, you, you're not going to get a French fry out of it. No, you're not. Well, I wasn't thinking about it so much in terms of as you have to out of your limitless sense of responsibility. I was thinking about it more as a kind of marker, a, mm. a cultural token, if I can put it that way, because I realized that it's something that was totally meaningless to me. Our kids got me an air fryer for Christmas. And I tried it once or twice, and I said, there's no point to this thing. There's nothing that this thing does that I can't do otherwise. And it got me to thinking about how each decade, at least since I've been alive, has one emblematic or iconic appliance that sums up the values, at least in America, Hmm. of the people who are using it. Let me start in the 1950s. There, it seemed to me that the iconic or emblematic appliance, the thing you plugged in to light up your life, was the mixer. The sunbeam. It was the sunbeam. The sunbeam, exactly. The sunbeam mix master. Black and white and plugged in, hugely loud. But it clearly represented for a whole generation a particular kind of suburban dream, a particular kind of post-war prosperity. And you can't think of the 1950s, I think, without thinking of the Sunbeam Mixmaster. In the 1960s, the emblematic appliance surely was the blender. The blender, I remember making its roto noises in every kitchen my parents and I would visit. Now, the actual blender, as you know, invented by Fred Waring, uh, the music man, has a much longer history. But by the 1960s, it summed up that whole world of madmen culture in every James Bond fantasy. There's a blender making a uh, daiquiri someplace in the background. The 70s, I think we all know what the emblematic appliance of the 70s was. Cuisinart. Absolutely. It comes on the American market in 1973 and sweeps right through American cooking. And when you think about it, what did it represent? Why was it so popular? Now, of course, it did certain things well, and it cut down your chopping time, or seemed to, though I think we've all learned since that it chops too fine and minces too much. But it was essentially a shortcut to haute cuisine. If you were a Julia Child watcher or a Julia Child reader, the Cuisinart represented the possibility of high-speed, high-efficiency haute cuisine, whether you were making pie crust or making a ratatouille, things that would normally, with a food mill and a chef's knife, take you a very long time. Suddenly, 
could be made right away. You know, I actually knew Carl Sunheimer, who, who Did was you? the man behind the device. Right. He, he used to drive around in the early 70s to gourmet shops and cookware stores, mm-hmm. and he'd have one in the back of his station wagon, <laughs> and he'd pull it out and he'd demonstrate it. I mean, he, he really did it door-to-door to get that business started. It is astonishing when you read its history that it appears in 1973 and then slowly grows and slowly and then just has this unbelievable boom. The 1980s, of course, has the microwave. Did you know, Christopher, that in 1980, 20% of American households owned a microwave, and by 1986, that figure had quadrupled. Hmm. And if you think about it, it's very much part of 80s culture. It's the popcorn maker. It's the coffee heater. It's the thing we always used to say, you can nuke this, right? Uh, The 90s, I think that the key thing that happened was a rejection of appliances and a return of a certain kind of naturalism. As you probably remember, there was a huge boom in the 90s for Dutch ovens. Mm. All those kinds of cast iron and ceramic, Le Creuset and Staub and the rest, that's what you wanted to have. It was a kind of pathway into the artisanal and local and seasonal movements. In the 21st century, it seems to me we've had two emblematic appliances, more or less, in sequence. The slow cooker and the air fryer. Rather than giving us speed and immediacy, it gives us extension and attenuation that we don't have to attend at every minute. Yeah, I think I think it's really the Instant Pot, which is a pressure cooker slash slow cooker. You'd have to give that recognition. You know, zillions were sold. Yes. Uh, and it's a combination of convenience, but also does a lot of things pretty well. So it's sort of in between the high-minded Cuisinart and the right. low-minded microwave. That's a downright Gobnickian statement. (laughs) I'm well-trained, that's all I can say. And now, finally, is the air fryer. That's the latest thing to become emblematic. And I will confess that it is opaque to me, as I'm sure the peculiar virtues of the Cuisinart were completely opaque to an older generation of chefs who wanted to know what was possibly wrong with using a sharp knife and a food mill. And I find myself equally baffled by the passion of the younger generation for the air fryer, because as you said, it seems to fry nothing. It simply heats (laughs) and warms. And yet we have the whole world of objects being put in the air fryer and then made into TikTok videos and shared by millions and millions of people. And the only guess I can make about its importance is that the air fryer is the emblematic appliance of the age of social media. It doesn't do anything very well any more than Twitter or TikTok do anything very well, but it does do it quickly and in a way that you can share with others. It's a a team appliance. I always notice that, that my kids all do it together, something that brings uh, people together for however meaningless, at least some kind of collaborative effort. Well, wait, 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 wait. wait. What do they actually cook in the air fryer? They seem to cook some version of everything, but they particularly like vegetables. That's another element of it, uh-huh. is that it, it speaks to the new vegetarian consciousness, right? Because you put in sliced zucchini, and you get some kind of, to my mind, completely unpalatable version of fried zucchini, <laughs> but it, it's close enough to count. Right. So, so we started back in the 50s with something heavy, noisy, and extremely useful and pragmatic, right? and then the blender— and then you finally get to the final appliance, and the first name in the appliance is air, which I think uh. tells you something. <laughs> so you're saying we've gone from practicality in real life to, to something else? Have we not gone 
from practicality, <laughs> heaviness, machinery, yes. the giant car with its uh, tail fins to lighter than air. Yeah. Is that not exactly the arc of American civilization in the past 60 years from big, heavy things that did obvious work to light things that seemed to do no obvious work, but yet served to connect people together? But I, but I, I would say, originally, appliances were designed to do work. And I think now you're saying appliances are now designed to entertain. Well, I think that's true. And of how many things is that true, right? Nobody anticipated that when we finally had, each of us, a tiny object in our pockets that would have access literally to all the knowledge of the history of the world, that we would use it to make videos of people using an air fryer. On that note about the collapse of modern civilization, uh, maybe it's cocktail time. Start up the blender. We are men of the 60s. <laughs> That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer at The New Yorker. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, and learn about our magazine and latest cookbook, Vegetables. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177MilkStreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Media Director, Melissa Baldino. Executive Producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior Audio Editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. 